everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, that's messed up. I mean, we're going to talk about Dennis Rader or BTK for Thanksgiving. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I said to Shannon, at least he's not a cannibal, or that would have been really gross to yeah, think about. But... I mean, would have been on the nose. It would have been yeah. just a little bit on the nose. I mean, in some ways, he's far worse than a cannibal. But, yeah, I was going to um, say it's going to be it's far still less be gross. We're going to be less thankful by the end of this. Today, we'll be talking mostly about we'll see how far we get because there's so much on this dude. Mm-hmm. I um I ended up reading and I'm still actually getting through it because it's so dense. But I sure. mentioned this book on one of our other episodes in preparation for this series. And there's a great book by Catherine Ramsland, who's a PhD. The book is called Confession of a Serial Killer, the Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. And uh, the majority of the book is this interview with him where a lot of the information is just direct quotes. And he talking about, obviously very matter-of-factly, because he's such a psychopath. Of course. um, His life. So I'm going to also at times be you know, if I'm referencing something, I may go to that place in the book and read a little piece of that to give you all a little bit more information and also help you get into the mind of him. Because in preparation for this, I was telling Shannon that, you know, we do a lot of true crime on the show and we talk about a lot of different cases and we read a lot of different things. But this book, I had to read very slowly. It was really traumatizing. And that's coming from someone who's evaluated sex offenders and violent predators and sat in room with psychopaths and it this there's something about him that I've wanted to study for a while to me he's the most disturbing right it's like there's something about him that's much more depraved than what you've ever sat with right and even though I know we've just like talked about Dahmer and talked about that series and he's you know it's not that one is better or worse than the other it's just I think the Raiders, Dahmer felt a little bit more impulsive to me, where mm-hmm. Raider was so calculated and controlled. And I'll go into like the amount of time that he went without doing anything. Right. And maybe there's something about Dahmer that because it's been so talked about, and I think one of our fascinations with Dahmer was always that it was so relational for him and there was so there's so much yeah and I don't know if this is appropriate or not I really don't but there's so much pathos with Dahmer yeah like even that most recent series that we talked about it's like everybody wants us to feel for him yes no one feels for this dude no so isn't that interesting and I feel like maybe that's because Dahmer has more of those borderline traits Mm -hmm. that sort of pull empathy Mm mm-hmm and culturally that has played out and we know a lot about his background yeah so different and i also think that Dahmer was presented almost childlike as fucked up yes. as that sounds no no for sure where raider comes off as incredibly aware yeah and matter of fact about his crimes and if if you ever right. you know if you listen to the series and you decide you want to know more about him i highly suggest going online YouTube or whatever, and watching some of his forensic interviews, he's terrifying how incredibly flat and unaffected he is. Right. And but, by the end of this couple of episodes that you're going to start off doing, mm-hmm. Raider, I'm sure we will be, we yeah. will understand why. Yeah. So who is this guy? For those of you who may not know a lot about him, because, you know, he does have a, a weird sort of following, but he's definitely not as popular. I feel like most people have heard of the BTK, but they don't 
necessarily know what that means. They started to introduce him in Mindhunter mm-hmm. in the second season, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so he's, his name is Dennis Lynn Rader. He was born on March 9th in 1945. He's known as an American serial killer. Uh, as the the BTK, which is an abbreviation he gave himself, which stands for bind, torture, kill, which was the method that he used to kill his victims. He was also known as the BTK strangler or the BTK killer. Um, Between 1974 and 1991, he killed 10 people in Wichita and Park City, Kansas, and he sent taunting letters to police and newspapers describing the details of his crime of his crimes. And we'll get into that part a little bit later. He loved, he was like the Zodiac a little bit where he really loved to taunt and play with the police. And once we get into his psyche a little bit too, I do believe that there was a part of him that really did want to get caught. Um, He, like we know from other serial killers, he was so compulsive and he was so aware of his sadism that I think there is a, whether it was conscious or not, a part of him that really wanted someone to make it stop. Mm -hmm. So he was convicted of murdering 10 victims. He was planning to attack another victim at the time of his arrest, which the arrest will be a different episode. He developed a morbid fascination with extreme violence as a young boy. And he often fantasized in his head about torturing and killing others. And those fantasies started very, very young. He knew, just like many of these folks, they know from a very young age that something is wrong. So this is a quote that he said. He said, I first started seeing or thinking monsters at age three to four. I can see a figure in everyday things. Often wonder if that had something to do with me later. I didn't want to be helpless. So he talks a lot about his ch- in his childhood feeling this sense of helplessness that he could not um, control these fantasies, but he also had he was really addicted to them at the same time. Like he was fascinated and terrified of them all at once. But he knew he had known since he was young that he would eventually come to kill, and. When we look at risk assessment, when we're working with very violent individuals, psychopaths or in whatever in that same camp, and this would come up a lot when I was working with sex offenders, is if they were talking a lot about their fantasies in, in a way that wasn't like, because they're not, the fantasies aren't like processing trauma. The fantasies are really things that they've plotted. And so we would actually stop them from talking about the fantasies because the fantasies are actually a rehearsal for the real thing often, which is why when these folks will go to prison, we have to be really careful about like group therapy work and things like that, or even separating them in in the forensic hospitals or in prisons because they will commiserate together in these fantasies and it can get really bad. So they, a lot of times they'll keep them separate. So just a little bit about that, you know, why that's important is we're going to talk a lot about the intensity of his fantasies, how early they started and how, because they started so early, he knew that this was all a rehearsal for eventually living this out. Mm. To sum it all up, Raider learned to look at the most mundane and otherwise ordinary items as a set piece for his murder. So Sunday school classes were looked at his as his as the stage for postmortem bondage photos. 
and a neighbor's neck was looked at as a great place for a rope. So the way he would go into the world and he'd see the most mundane objects, he would then fantasize about something really, really, really sadistic which is really crazy. Like it could be a cereal box. It could be a person's yeah. neck. It could be. That speaks to the compulsion. Right? Oh my gosh. Like it was his entire world. Wow. The question about Raider is whether this, you know, was this man born to kill much different than the environmental components that, that we may contribute to Gacy or Bundy and Manson. Sure. The way in which he spoke about his crimes was very flat. Matter of fact, without remorse, as though he was giving a play-by-play of like a stereo installation. He was just so like, and then I did this, and then I did this. Mm -hmm. And so to be more specific, Shannon and I have talked a lot about the difference between psychopathy and sociopathy on the show. And although many of the criteria and the symptomology is the same, what really separates one from the other is sociopathy tends to be more of an environmental stressor heavy narcissistic features. It's kind of like a malignant form of narcissism. They can also be very violent, like Ted Bundy, very reactive to things. Um, We might consider them like a, you know, a type two psychopath or whatever, where they just have more of like the impulsive, narcissistic, Mm -hmm. arrogant traits. Raider did have a messed up childhood, and I'm going to talk about that, but it is almost like something in him was just wrong. And so then it's that piling on, right? It's and then what it's we the talk piling about. Like on. you can be born to be this way. And then if you have a loving environment, a good attachment, right. a good home, that may not ever get played out. That's right. So like, you know, something we call the diathesis stress model, which is, you know, you can have a, a genetic predisposition to something, but if the environment you grow up in is safe, just like with a medical thing, right? Mm-hmm. You might be predisposed to having diabetes, right. but if you you know eat a good diet and you take care of your health and you exercise, you may have a genetic predisposition, but you'll never develop it. Psychopathy is very similar um, where you can have it, you can be born with that gene or that defect in the brain, but if the environment allows for something more nurturing, although they may still have psychopathic, ten- like you know, they may not have a lot of remorse, they're not gonna become a killer. Right. Okay. So that's what we're talking about here. So I think it was definitely a a combination of a bunch of factors that his psychopathy then became escalated. And his crimes were very, very much motivated by his sexual fantasies. So talk a little bit about his childhood here. He was the oldest of four sons. He enjoyed what he would deem a seemingly normal childhood. Mm -hmm. He attended uh, Riverview Elementary School, reportedly masking the disturbing behavior as um, he would hang stray animals, right? Early, early on. We know, mm-hmm. hello, that's a big warning sign. Yeah. He was the eldest of four and pretty, a pretty, what we would consider an unremarkable childhood, which just simply means like there wasn't any like major, at least early, early on that we know of, not many stressors that would be anything to remarkably note. But what we would soon learn is that his relationship with his mother was way more complicated than many people thought. So Raider also stated that his mother fell off a horse when he was pregnant with her. He said, she told me she had dropped me on my head when I was six to eight months old. I turned blue, but not taken to the hospital. The right side of my head hit hard. That may have scrambled the network. Raider also struggled with learning to read among other academic challenges. So we don't know for sure, but something neurostructurally could have been damaged there. 
he had seemingly he had a seemingly untroubled childhood as much as we knew about meaning there weren't a lot of behavioral disturbances at school he wasn't getting bad reports from teachers his father worked at the railroad and mom worked at the grocery store Hmm. they were described by people who grew up around them as very nice people Roger Farthing was a classmate of Raider's, and he said that Raider fit in with his friends, but dark and alarming thoughts were developing in his mind at this time. So he he knew well enough to keep that, that something was different. He knew to keep it to himself. And not all kids have that uh, awareness. You know, they'll just start to say shit, and people yeah. are like, what? Raider knew. More impulsive. Yes. Right. He wasn't. So he early knew. on, he mm-hmm. was he was not impulsive. And, and somewhere around him, he knew that he wasn't mirroring the culture, that he was he was mm. not, quote unquote, normal. Like his thoughts were not average. That's right. Yeah. That's, and fast, that's really interesting. Really interesting as a child to be able to do that. So yeah. he had a he had a distinct recollection of his mother killing chickens. And because he, he grew up like near a farm or on a farm and he was really fascinated by watching this. Mm. So he'd he'd go after turtles and the way that he would kill them is he would hang them. So he started like he had this fascination with ropes and strangulation from the time he was a child, which is really interesting. So this this some of this stuff didn't come out till after his conviction, which is why a lot of, you know, his interviews and his psychology and all of that, why people said, well, it seemed like he grew up pretty normal until all this stuff started to come out Right until they really dug in. And then it doesn't get any stereotypical, more stereotypical than this, but he had a fetish for women's underwear and for killing animals, um, but neither one of these were open at the time. He'd also developed a morbid fascination with extreme violence as a young boy, um, and he would just fantasize not just about animals, but he would fantasize, he started to fantasize about torturing and killing people. While all this was going on, he moved from turtles and he was starting to kill dogs and cats in secret. So he'd probably steal neighbor's animals or if you live on a farm, there's a lot of strays and things like that. With regard to his sexual deviancy, he was about when he was about 11 or 12, a teacher humiliated him and he was very angry and went to her house that evening and peeked through her window. He had a rope with him that was tied around his waist He's 11 or 12, just want to keep that in mind here. Right. As he watched her through the window, he had an orgasm. We've talked about this in other shows, but mm-hmm. we would call this a paired association. The rope, the voyeurism, and the feeling of being powerful over another person in that moment, especially with the, the sexual um, arousal, the brain paired that mm-hmm. as something that felt really good and something he wanted to continue to relive. Mm -hmm. So early development of his sexuality, things like this. So this is fusing in his early teens. Except it's not something that was forced upon him. No. Like like we see so often where it's something he was seeking out. It's already there. There was a drive Mm -hmm. and then he actually was in control of that parrot association. He didn't know that that's what he was doing. That's but right. It's like he was going after an, an innate drive, which is so interesting. So interesting. Yeah. So he started. And so to go back, like what I was saying at the beginning is he had fantasized it about enough, uh, enough, enough times that then he, that became rehearsal for the real thing. So, so he's fusing in his early teens, which is when the sexual development and the experience is crucial in either a healthy or, you know, more of a sadistic development. And so early on, these fantasies paired with his sex, um, sexual arousal, this now formulates a whole new neuropathway. 
And, and the problem here is because he was so sophisticated in hiding these urges, there wasn't anything outwardly absurd about him. Nobody saw that these fantasies continued to grow. All the while, he has this whole other part of his life happening, which is growing up in a small town, attending church, uh, having a faith-based family, and he was active in his church, attending um, Zion Lutheran Church. So he even says, I was active as a boy. He said, I was active in church as a boy. At Zion Lutheran Church, it was, the, it was a custom to have the young boys be altar boys or acolytes to light and put out the candelabrums in the service and to assist the pastor. During one service, I felt the Holy Spirit move me. This enlightenment may have been a good spiritual, spirit pivotal point in my life to become a church and Boy Scout leader and wear the white hat. I sat on the front pew, always directly below the pastor's sermon pulpit. That day I was dressed in a white pullover robe and felt it glow. For a while, I focused sharply on being good. I didn't cuss, no drinking or drugs, no sex. I recall one day everyone bought their 4H, brought their 4-H items for display. Some boys used the Lord's name in vain and cussed up a storm. I was so upset. I almost cried at home telling my mom about it. Yet by that same age, 12 to 13, I was also starting to think of bondage. I kept these dark thoughts to myself. When I did that, I was lonely. I felt I had no friends, even my folks. So before I move on, this is, and by the way, when I'm reading the excerpts here, it's from the Confession of a Serial Killer book. I think this is really interesting because to me, I don't know, and I'd like your opinion on the Shannon. I don't know if this is so much that he was, I feel like he experimented with things and because he had no self and he had, he was so unaffected. I almost feel that this was a, another version of that. Like I'm going to try to be this now, Yeah. but it's interesting because he does talk about like shame and, and guilt, which is not something that we typically see with psychopaths, but I don't know if this was just another identity that he was trying on. Yeah. It's a really interesting question. I mean, part of it is like, you know, we find a lot of people with religious yearnings that are, it's coming from a compulsive nature. And so that's why you see, and I mean, that's what I think is that why we see so much religion and early religion in these, in these, the youthfulness of it. I'm also wondering as we go through this, uh, the other thing that came to mind was, you know, a paired association between bondage and religion, which would not be out of the scope of, that's true. of normal in these kinds of cases. Because if you think about it, religion is set up as a power structure, you know, that you are submissive to God and looking for his guidance, et cetera, which can be in the healthy kink community, obviously as part of the dynamic and this is unhealthy kink and his drives towards sadism. It's the same difference. There's still a power differential and maybe there's a paired association there with the bondage and religion. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, I think there was, so, there were so many things going on in his environment, but also that there's this eight, this, um, aching to stop it mm -hmm. but then it's like two sides like this internal conflict and this other side that's like no I'm I enjoy this way too much yeah and I think that speaks to your early uh, earlier points when we were talking about him being him knowing that it wasn't average mm -hmm. and, and and there is a drive even even though he's having all of these maladaptive drives and early psychopathy there is still a drive in every human 
on some level, in some way, to mirror their culture, mirror their peers, mirror their family, be like others. And I think this was one way he could see like, oh, okay, everyone is doing this. I'm actually driven to it because of my my bondage need and I'm, but I'm also actually driven to it because, hey, this is a more socially acceptable piece and I could mirror being normal. And then, of course, my mind goes to, was this an early way for him to mimic average people? You know, how psychopaths early on will learn to exactly. mimic us. Exactly. So he was learning. This actually was part of his... <laughs> part of his practice in some ways Mm -hmm. of of like oh okay if i'm a god-fearing person people will accept me and i can go under the radar (laughs) (laughs) under the radar yeah yeah Um, unintended (laughs) no 100 so even trying on the identity of being pure like you said yeah, yeah like the identity of okay i can mimic all these other people with this particular identity of course it didn't last very long i'm assuming no (laughs) No. so (laughs) he gave it a shot here he is you know (laughs) he's trying on this new identity almost feels like magical thinking delusional intellectualized he's also really transparent about his selfishness Mm. so he was matter of fact about how his fantasies and desires caused many people grief and harm like he would say yeah i know i killed this family or i destroyed this person's life he speaks about his first girlfriend who he meets at this church in his early teens and he recollects about how it was the first time he felt hurt if he wasn't able to see her and i'm gonna go into this in a second but i want to i want to bring up two things about that i that i meant to say it's also related to this piece right here for a psychopath the worst thing you can do to trigger them is either humiliate them or abandon them. And that teacher that triggered his first, I think really his first, that was his first victim as far as I'm concerned, human right. victim anyway. Right. He felt humiliated by her, mm-hmm. right? So he goes and does this. Here is a, a similar feeling. There's this feeling of you're taking this person away from me. So the father... He was devastated that the father of this girl transferred, they transferred churches and he could no longer see her. And he says, I never could accept rejection very well. I believe this was one of my main issues, rejection and attention. Somehow the need for attention as a wanted and lovable child did not develop properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had ambivalent feelings about his mother. He would say in one breath that he felt she was a traitor. And then in the other breath, he was kind of, fascinated, obsessed with her. Many of his first fantasies would come from the way in which she would discipline him. So this is really fascinating. At the age of 10 or 11, his mother stated that if if he masturbated, God will come and kill you. That's always a healthy message, right? Yeah, there's that coupling of religion. There's, there's the coupling. And bondage. So, mm-hmm. so this was after she had found uh, seminal fluid in his underwear, He's a young kid. He's having wet dreams. He's masturbating. So again, here comes that word. He feels humiliated and embarrassed by his mother. His mother shames him. His mother sees a very intimate and vulnerable side of him. At other times he felt she was testing to see whether he could feel anything, which I think is a, again, at that age to that's where his mind went is my mother testing me. Yeah tells me that that's what he was doing to people because how else would he have known that? Right. Right. So he says this. One day 
either my mom was testing me to see what I would do, or she actually got her hand caught in the sofa. So either she was pretending to, or it actually was. She asked me to go run for help next door to her mother's. Her wedding band was caught on the spring, I think, and she was crying in panic. I was scared yet excited. I stared at her. I had a strange feeling in the pit of my stomach and the groin area. I ran next to the next door to grandma's house for help. I often wonder if the early emotions of this triggered some inner dark feeling about a woman in bondage needing help. The sofas replayed in my mind many times, not mom, but women in bondage on them. I had the same feeling with mom at the top of a Ferris wheel. It was just like before the first time I had the big G, which is what he called his first orgasm. Okay. So he's already starting to wonder about some of these early situations and whether like we keep using that term paired association. Mm -hmm. A lot of this started with mom. Okay. So he experiences shocking, shocking as, as our listeners will say, I just, I digress really quickly. Um, one of our listeners on Instagram one time, I think it was when we were doing Dahmer was saying, you know, the comment under your Instagram post about the episode, his comment was, shocking that yeah. the mother was part of it <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know yeah. so i make a joke of it now uh-huh. but like this is the pattern yeah this is what we see and it's tough because mothers carry this burden 100 in their lives they just happen to be that most often that primary they are the attachment are the, the attachment. first attachment o- mm-hmm. attachment objects so. sure so he starts to experience harshness mixed with mercy and abuse mixed with love. So that doesn't get any more confusing than that for a child. And so then you know that as a child like that gets older, abuse does equal love and harshness mixed with mercy, that harshness becomes something positive. So he stated that he fantasized both about his mother and grandmother's femininity and softness. So he once had an urge to masturbate with his mother's white satin slip but again, knew it would be the end of him if she found out. Additionally, he was obsessed with his grandmother's long hair and hair ribbons. So he had this bizarre attachment to the softness, the femininity. And I imagine that's because there's a piece of that that felt very vulnerable and easy to control and something that was so opposite of what he felt, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. So a painful experience during childhood became a sense of comfort, right? So we, you know, you often hear people say there's comfort in consistency and, and this painful experience that he was, that he was having and still trying to incorporate and understand that as love, this now becomes a sense of comfort for him. And we're all, no matter who we are, we go through our life seeking comfort and safety. Sometimes it's pathological, yeah. but we all want that. And we our definition all... of safety can be fucked totally up. Totally <laughs> different, yeah. yeah. So this is, this is really weird. A female doctor comes to his house once when he had punctured his eardrum to remove pressure oh and relieve his earache. Mm-hmm. His mother was holding him during the process. So they remove the warm oil after the, you know, I grew up with earaches. Sometimes they'll pour something in there to, ex- to extract whatever it is or sure. take the pain away. So they remove the warm oil after the excruciating pain. He would later identify this as his early BDSM. Okay. Okay. It was the first time he paired a really painful sensation with something incredibly comforting. Okay. His doctor later became the target of stalking. 
So just like his teacher, he became obsessed with the person who made him feel this way. By his mid-teens, he was starting to experience sexual dreams he knew no other young man was having by then. He knew who he would become. Mm. And so, again... He knew enough because he paid attention enough to others. And there's a level of sophistication there. Absolutely. If this is someone who's impulsive or disorganized or has some sort of developmental delay, like, you know, we've talked about uh, Ramirez, Mm -hmm. um, that I think this is the exact opposite. This is someone who... was so intelligent yeah. and knew how to keep this side of himself separate. Yeah, this is so unique. I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. more episodes and continuing on to learn about him. And that's what it'll be. Is we're gonna, really fascinating. We're going to talk more as we move through this about how his main focus was to keep his life so separate from his deviance. It's really fascinating and how early it started. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kathy. You guys tune in for more of this. We're going to do a second episode for sure next week. And then we'll, we'll let you know when more episodes will happen for that. Maybe the next week, maybe next month. We're just not sure. We try to do a deep dive. So it takes us a little bit of time, but thank you so much for listening. Follow us on all the social medias and consider becoming a Patreon for us. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.